identified the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome top writer, director, producer Bill Frolic. We're going to talk about his shows that he produced, including MacGyver and um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King and several shows I grew up with. Also, he, uh, movies, and he wrote some books, and he's a very talented, knowledgeable man. Here's Bill. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Sherry. I'm really glad to be here with you. I'm looking forward I'm to it. I'm really this. happy to have you here. You have quite the career to chat about. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it it has been fun. It's been, I guess, a combination of everything. It's been uh, exciting, uh, at times uh, frustrating, but uh, always an adventure and and something that uh, uh, has been uh, pretty much a, uh, elements of, of a dream come true. Because I was a, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and the, and the thought of uh, ending up working in Hollywood in uh, motion pictures and television was uh, uh, was quite a ways off. So it's been a it's been a fun an adventure and journey getting there. My first question is, were you a reader as a kid? Uh, yes, I, I was, even as a, a very young boy. Uh, I loved to read. In fact, my mother, my mother tells a story of um, when I came home from the first day of first grade, I was, I was all upset. And I actually had uh, tears, and, and my mom said, what is, what is wrong? Well, I had been told that when I went to first grade, you know, going from kindergarten to first grade, that I would learn to read. And I came home on the first day, and I looked at my mom and said, I can't read. <laughs> I didn't learn to read on day one. Uh, so it was very exciting. <laughs> I was very excited, obviously, about reading from a very young age. Um, and I, Aww, I still love so it. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> my my home Aww. is filled with books, and I am I am constantly buying books. Uh, in fact, sometimes I have to uh, have to be careful that I I don't bring home more than I can actually uh, read in one lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's my issue. Uh, books and DVDs. I. <laughs> Yep. Uh, most girls it's shoes and clothes. I I like that too, but not. I mean, I can watch myself on that. But when it comes to books and DVDs, I am weak. <laughs> well, I have. It, it's something I think has followed me throughout my life. I have loved books. I have bought books. I have many DVDs that I have bought, and also I uh, I own many. Uh, record albums and CDs. Oh. So books, movies, and music have been uh, a major part of uh, uh, the enjoyment in, in my life and a real passion. And obviously, it's probably one of the reasons that led me towards uh, pursuing a career in the entertainment business. And I was uh, a movie buff and a television buff from, uh, from when I was young. I can remember my parents uh, being a little concerned, wanting to restrict my television watching in high school because uh, I was watching so much of it. But I, I think I had an inkling that this was something I probably wanted to do for 
a living. I uh, didn't know exactly what that would be like growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, since I knew everything of and television and film was happening uh, either in uh, in Los Angeles in Hollywood or somewhat in New York at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I was a clear movie buff and television buff. I I I have a picture from when we were kids that I guess my mom or my dad took of both of us staring at the TV, laying on the floor with our feet in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good TV-watching pose. <laughs> it's just us side-by-side side with our dog, looking straight at the television, and our both our – it wasn't like – communicated both our feet were bent i mean our knees were bent and our feet were right in the air it was the funniest picture in the world <laughs> wow <laughs> uh, probably watching adam 12 or something <laughs> <laughs> well clearly for me television and movies besides being something that i just enjoyed they had a real impact on me, especially some of the, uh, the stronger movies that, uh, uh, that I saw. And I really loved being able to step into that world when I would be watching them. So it became like a magic carpet ride for me. Mm-hmm. And my parents told me the very first movie that I saw, this will date me somewhat, was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the MGM musical. Mm-hmm. And my parents... They were a little uh, concerned because I was uh, I was in the terrible twos at the time, and I was a very active kid according to uh, to my parents, and they had they had ideas of me tearing around the theater, making noise, and disrupting everything. So they were a little nervous. <laughs> they were out on a they were out on a date with me, and they thought, oh boy. Uh, at that point, I was Billy, not you know, not Bill. They said this this could be a problem, but they said. Uh, as soon as the curtain came up, because at this time in the big theaters, there was actually a curtain that parted, and then you saw the silver screen. They said that I uh, tucked my, my legs under myself and sat high up on the, as the theater seat as I could, and I was absolutely enthralled and didn't say a, a word or a peep during the entire movie. And an interesting circle of coming around on that seven brides for seven brothers the first movie i saw and the male lead of that was the great howard keel and a friend of mine uh, a very uh, talented uh, writer composer lyricist alan j friedman he and i worked on a number of projects together and right now we actually have a musical um that uh, uh, we're hoping at some point to uh, to get out there. Um, and uh, at one point, we had been trying to do a, a a television pilot for a musical television series. This was years ago. And we got Howard Keel to record the theme song to the television pilot. And it turned out to be the last thing that Howard Keel ever recorded before he passed away. And that was it it, uh, it. it really meant something to me that I was able to meet this amazing talent um, while he was still with us, and the fact that he starred in the very first movie that I ever saw as a as a as a two year old. That's adorable. I always loved him. I 
I was when I was a little girl, the first movie I ever saw him in was Calamity Jane. And oh, yeah. I loved that movie. And but I okay, I kind of thought that the Howard Keel from Calamity Jane and the Howard Keel from the movies and TV shows I saw him later were two different Howard Keels, maybe one is the father and the son or something. I Anyway, I didn't realize the man who was in, like, Murder, She Wrote was the same guy who was singing with Doris Day and Calamity Jane until my, I mentioned it to my mom, and she said, Sherry, that's him. <laughs> that's him. He's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I mean, I was that, well, I was huh. pretty innocent. <laughs> Well, Howard Keel was uh, you know, he was a major uh, MGM uh, movie star with all the musicals and things that he did. Um, so I I was very impressed with that experience. And he was in his 80s when he recorded um, uh, this song for us. And his voice was as marvelous and powerful and full and rich as it ever was. It was just a, a wonderful experience. To, uh, I think that's to have him fascinating that. that his voice was just the same. That's so cool. Yeah. That old, you know, you just don't expect that. Um, the only person, well, I mean, there, I'm sure there's several stars that were like that, but the one I can think of is Desi Arnaz. Um, toward the end of his life, I saw him on David Letterman, and his voice was still like it was when he did I Love Lucy, just as fun and powerful and 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 full. And I was, like, amazed that it was, he still could sing like that. Because not very yeah. long after that, the man had throat cancer. So it was just amazing. So it, that, that Howard Keel still had that voice. Wow, that's amazing. Kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what was your path to um, becoming a screenwriter or a tele- writing teleplay? Sorry. <laughs> well, it, um, I, had, I had always thought of it would be fun and interesting to be a writer as I was growing up as a uh, uh as a young lad, um, but when I got to college, I mean, I went to I went to Ithaca College, and I went there for television, radio, and cinematography, uh, with a minor emphasis in uh, uh, drama, theater, and uh, and English. And one of the things it was uh, it was an excellent education that I got there. Um, but one of the things that turned out to be uh, quite important and meaningful to me was. The great Rod Serling, um, who, as we know, uh, was the creator and writer, executive producer behind Twilight Zone, and many great uh, television specials. Uh, I think he wrote both. He wrote, uh, you know, the very first Playhouse 90, and and also the last one, and a number in between. One of the most celebrated writers uh, in the in the history of television. Um, six or seven Emmys, I believe, a Peabody Award. Uh, Rod's career, Rod Serling's career is legendary. And he was... He wrote Marty, um, didn't he? 
Marty. No, that uh, Marty Marty was written by Patty Chayefsky, but okay, Patty Chayefsky and Rod Marty. Serling, and Ernest Lehman and Reginald Rose and a lot, they were uh, they were all writers that were part of um, uh, this great time in uh, in television, and. Um, you know, Rod with his talk about voices, as we were just talking about before, Rod Serling with his great voice and the great voice that we heard, you know, him using for the intro and the outro of Twilight Zone episodes. He sounded just like that uh, in person when you, uh, you know, when you met him uh, It was not an affectation that he put on. That was his voice. And it was spectacular. Um, but he was a professional in residence, uh, a visiting uh, professor. Uh, at Ithaca College when he would come back from Hollywood to Ithaca, New York, because uh, he and his wife, Carol, uh, and their daughters, Jody and Ann, had a, a, a summer home on Lake Cayuga. And Ithaca sits on the south end of Lake Cayuga, one of the Finger Lakes in the, the Finger Lake region of upstate New York. And uh, they loved that summer house. And so when Rod would come back from Hollywood, uh, he lived in Pacific Palisades um, when he was out in you know, California doing all the production. Um, but he would come back because he wanted a break. And uh, he started um, being a kind of uh, professional in residence, a, a visiting professor at, uh, at Ithaca teaching writing seminars. So all four years that I went to Ithaca College, uh, I was fortunate enough to take his seminars. And I ended up becoming friends with him, and he kind of took me under his wing. And during some of those years, we would, uh, he would have us writing scenes or writing little short stories as part of the things in the class. So he happened to grab me just before graduation, and he said, Bill, what are you planning on doing? Most of the kids... Uh, in, uh, during my college years at Ithaca were mostly going to go into broadcast television and radio. Uh, I wanted to go out to California to make movies. I wanted to write, direct, and, and produce uh, motion pictures. So Rod said to me, he said, well, you know, you can write your way into directing. And I looked at him and I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm not really a, a writer because, you know, when I thought of a writer, I thought of someone like Rod Serling, I was in awe of this man's talent. And Rod said, oh, no, you're, you're a writer. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not really a writer. And he said, Bill, I've been reading your short stories and the scenes you've written in my class for four years now, so I can tell you you're definitely a writer. Well, that kind of shook me to my core. To have someone like that tell me that I, I had some talent as a writer really spurred me. So... When I came out to California, I started writing some projects of my own, developing some projects on spec. And before his death, he, uh, he was helping me with uh, some guidance uh, with a couple of those projects. So I, I give a, a heartfelt uh, tilt of my hat to Rod Serling for helping me uh, start on the path uh, to being a writer. And um, because of the advice and the encouragement that he gave me, I just started writing on spec. I kept trying to get into the uh, business any way I could. Um, and I didn't really know uh, anyone when I came out here. I had a couple possible leads of some people to, to call. Um, 
And uh, I ended up getting into the mailroom at Universal, which was a very difficult thing to do at the time. Um, and uh, uh, I want to make and are, can you still hear me as we are chatting away here? Oh yes, I can hear you. I was I was just oh, letting you oh, talk. Good. I thought it was very interesting. I love Rod Serling. I mean, I, I grew up watching The Twilight Zone, so this, it was really cool to hear how wonderful he was to you and how encouraging. That's beautiful. Well, and I understand that one of, uh, uh, one of your inspirations uh, has been Ray Bradbury. And mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling worked together. Um, uh, Ray had, uh, had written some Twilight Zones and... Uh, you know, of course, Ray Bradbury is one of the giants of of uh, American writers. And I, years later, many years later, um, I had the uh, the great opportunity to meet Ray Bradbury twice when he was giving some uh, some uh, interviews and uh, and some lectures on when he was with a new book that he had coming out. I was able to spend just a little bit of time uh, with him. I can't, uh, you know, I didn't really get to know him per se, but just the opportunity to chat with Ray Bradbury about writing was quite inspirational. And he he ended up wanting to chat. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I've met, um, he actually came to my college to talk about um, writing and, and one of, uh, his films, and really, he really wanted to talk about dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> he, 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 that was the purpose, was to talk about uh, the film that was coming out, which was the Martian Chronicles, and a book that was coming out. But really, he was just, that day, he just felt like talking about dinosaurs, and I thought he was adorable. Yeah. And he, I met him afterwards, yeah, yeah. and he's really a nice man. <laughs> Was. Yeah, I I found him to be so, but what what an opportunity to to listen to to Ray Bradbury because boy, what a what a life as a writer that uh, that he had, and the, the work that he has given all of us to read is is uh, precious. Uh, one of my favorite Twilight Zones was Ray's. Uh, I sing the Body Electra. Uh, Beautiful oh, yeah. I mean, beautiful, yeah. beautiful book and beautiful script in, in the Twilight Zone, too. It's just the grandma. Um, <laughs> it was such a great show. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, I love Ray. I, I envy your getting to have a mentor as Rod Serling. That is the super, con- really cool thing to have. <laughs> well, it... It meant so much to me, and I continued to be friends with his wife, Carol, after Rod's untimely passing. He was only 50 years old when he passed. Um, And I I, I continued to be uh, friends with his daughter, Jody, and his daughter, Anne, and uh, they're they're terrific people. Uh, Carol just recently passed uh, a year ago. and she was marvelous, and she set up the Rod Serling archives at Ithaca College, and she was a, a trustee of Ithaca College for many years, so she gave uh, she gave back in that way, and she really protected Rod's work. 
um, and, uh, and and did a marvelous job with that. And Anne um, wrote a book about her dad, going uh, you know, Rod Serling, my father as I knew him. And anyone who's interested in Rod Serling should go buy this book by Anne Serling because oh, yeah. it's wonderful and it really gives you some amazing insights into uh, Rod as a man, Rod's career, his uh, his approach to writing. It's uh, it's well well worth it. A very good read. Cool. I'm, I'll buy it. Um, <laughs> I, I I admire him a great deal. Um, there, I actually one of my favorites apparently was one of the first time he actually interacted with a character in one of the Twilight Zone is um, where I can't remember the name of the episode. But it was uh, Keenan Wynn was a writer, and he made his characters come to life by talking into his his uh, tape recorder, and then mm-hmm. to make them poof, he just threw them in the fire, the 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 tape. And at the end of the episode, uh, Rod says, oh, "Of course, this is ridiculous. It couldn't happen." And Keenan goes, and uh, has this huge envelope that says Rod Serling, and he throws it in, and Rod gives the most adorable shrug and expression as he disappears. <laughs> <laughs> well, one one little tidbit about Rod's writing style that probably creeped its way into that episode is many of the episodes that Rod wrote of Twilight Zone, he wrote um, uh, using a dictaphone. Um, and then his uh, secretary or assistant would uh, would type it up because sometimes he just couldn't write things down or type things fast enough because the ideas were were coming to him so fast and, and he would use a dictaphone to or dictaphone to uh, uh, to put down uh, you know what he was actually writing. So maybe a touch of that worked its way into that episode. That, that makes sense. But, that makes a lot of sense. It was, it was uh, just, you were asking it was about. Episode. I just and Keenan Wynn yeah. and him, just the expressions on both their faces. It was adorable. <laughs> um, so, what was the first uh, thing that you got to write, and how did you get to write it? Well, the the first thing, <clears throat> interestingly, the first thing that I wrote that had a significance in my career was not something that I was paid to write. I'll tell you about the first thing I wrote that I got paid, uh, ultimately sold. But the first thing I wrote was a treatment for a motion picture uh, that was uh, quite an adventure story based on historical fact, and then I added, uh, you know, fictional elements to it, um, that took place in India and England in 1890 and again in 1911. And I wrote this treatment for this motion picture while I was in the mailroom at Universal, and I was trying to meet with everybody on the lot, whether they were stars or producers or directors or executives, trying to get a job uh, you know, in production or uh, in the business somehow other than delivering the mail. Um, and uh, the fact that I had written this treatment turned out to be uh, – extremely helpful because Burt Lancaster was a star 
who had his offices on the Universal lot at that time. He had been um, uh, producing and starring in a movie called Midnight Man that also starred uh, Susan Clark, a terrific actress. Uh, and um, I was a huge Burt Lancaster fan, and there was a, one of the lead roles in, uh, in this film I thought would be great for him. So I actually approached him, and through a series of some interesting circumstances, uh, we ended up be uh, becoming friends, uh, and he kind of, again, took me under his wing to give me some advice of how to move forward with this project, because he was fascinated by the story and said that he would lend his name to it and allow me to try to make some inroads with it. So the other person that I had, uh, when I had been writing this, had in mind uh, for doing this was uh, Anthony Hopkins. Now, Anthony Hopkins at the time was, uh, you know, he was not the, uh, the major star that he is today, Sir Anthony Hopkins, having just won the Oscar recently for uh, The Father. Uh, but uh, he was he was really known as a, a, a rapid rising star. He had done uh, QB7 on television based on the Leon Uris book, um, um, and he and Anthony Hopkins or he and Bert Lancaster would work together in Raid on Entebbe, true story about the raid and uh, uh, to rescue the hostages uh, and. Um, he, I noticed that he was coming to the Universal lot to do a television movie, a remake of the Betty Davis film Dark Victory, this time starring Elizabeth Montgomery, and the male lead was Anthony Hopkins. So I, I knew the producer of the television movie because I delivered his mail on the lot, and I asked if, if uh, he would actually introduce me to Anthony Hopkins. So I, uh, I was led onto the set at a time when, uh, you know, they weren't, working they were waiting around and um uh, and i was introduced to uh, to tony and he uh, and i said that i i had written a treatment form that bert lancaster was already interested and i said would you be interested in in reading this and he said absolutely no one's ever written something specifically for me um oh, and wow. i was in awe of his i was really in awe of his talent at that time because i'd seen him his first movie role was uh, playing uh, uh, you know, opposite uh, Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn in The Lion in Winter. And I had also, when I was in college, I had seen BBC did a 12-hour production of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, which was just magnificent. And Anthony Hopkins played Count Pierre Basuhoff, you know, one of the, the two major male leads. And I, I was just blown away by his talent. And um, so I was thrilled to meet him. But what ended up happening was that he read the treatment that night, and he called me uh, in the mailroom and said, I love this. I have to do this uh, with you. And so that led to uh, a number of uh, dinners uh, uh, with, uh, with Anthony Hopkins, and he always said, please call me Tony. And, um, and that was the very first thing that I wrote. Um, I then uh, turned that into, into a screenplay. But by the time I'd finished with the, uh, the screenplay, um, things had moved on in both uh, Burt Lancaster's career and, uh, and clearly with, uh, with Anthony Hopkins. Um, he, and 
so that project I did not get off the ground as a as a screenplay, but it did help get me out of the mailroom. Uh, That's because good. <laughs> because well, one of the uh, a, a producer director on the lot knew that uh, that I had corralled Burt Lancaster and Anthony Hopkins into this project, and at the time that I was doing that. I also had found an open available office on the lot that I knew nobody was using, and so I kind of commandeered that for my own office. And he he got such a kick out of the fact that I, as a as a, a mail messenger, I'd set up my own office at the you know, at the studio. Um, he uh, he had a script with Catherine Hepburn attached, but he didn't have all the finances. So I helped him uh, with some people that I knew who were looking to invest in films find some of the rest of the money to make that film and he invited me aboard um, as uh, associate producer so that was my first wow. credit in the business working on an independent uh, feature film starring Catherine Hepburn and through that I uh, ended up becoming uh, good friends with Catherine Hepburn and stayed in touch with her for many many years afterwards and saw her in New York and uh, you know where she lived in New York and in uh, Connecticut and um, so that you know led to uh, my first job, and that job led me to um, being hired by Grant Tinker, Mary Tyler Moore's husband and the president of MTM Enterprises, and he brought me aboard to be director of drama development and production. So I, <laughs> I ended up being an executive for two years, but I learned the television business at the feet of the master, at the feet of Grant Tinker, and I was able to learn from and work with such great talents as James L. Brooks and Alan Burns and Gene Reynolds and uh, Bruce Paltrow, and uh, it was just an amazing time. Um, and here I am, I'm, I'm supposed to be one of the liaisons between the executive uh, offices and production, but uh, I kind of looked at it as this is this is like a a graduate degree in, uh, in in television by being able to you know work with and learn from these people. So did you work on the Mary Tyler Moore show? Uh, no, I was uh, when I joined. Uh, the reason I was hired is that uh, it was the last season of the Mary Tyler Moore show, so I did get to go to the uh, to the final uh, rap celebration party, which was a lot of fun. Um, uh, and and I became friends with Alan Burns, who just recently passed away. Just a terrific, terrific man. He and James L. Brooks uh, co-created the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the reason I, I'm wondering here, the reason that I, I was hired, was they were MTM, having done all these great comedy shows, as we know, the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the Bob Newhart Show with uh, Suzanne Plachette and Bob Newhart, um, and uh, Rhoda and Phyllis and all these great comedies, and they were uh, they were such a classy comedy outfit. But they wanted to expand into drama, so I was hired when they were just starting the Lou Grant series, where the character that Ed Asner played from the Mary Tyler Moore Show in the Lou Grant series, he was uh, editor of a newspaper. So funny because I, I was just explaining to someone that just because it's a spin-off and it's the same character doesn't mean that it's going to be the same kind of a show. And I used Lou Grant as an example. Um, as, yeah. I was 
just explaining to a younger person because uh, they were complaining about uh, um, a spinoff of a show that wasn't exactly like the original show. And I was, that's what I was using as an example was the Lou Grant show. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a perfect example because the Lou Grant show was an hour drama and went on to win awards and, mm-hmm. um, and to be a celebrated series. But it clearly was not. Uh, he was playing the same character, Lou Grant, that he played on the Mary Tyler Moore show, but this was in a, a drama situation. So my experience at MTM was uh, was just marvelous because Grant Tinker is, uh, you know, a, a legend in the television business. And I was involved in the television movies uh, that we were doing at MTM and also our dramas. And I did that for a little over two years. But at that time, I realized, okay, I've learned, I've learned a lot. I mean, I've not learned everything, but I, I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned about myself was that my, my heart and soul passion was I wanted to write and produce and direct and have my hands on, uh, directly on the projects I was doing. And executive, you are a little bit removed because it's not your project. It's the project of whatever artist you are working with. Um, and, and you are there. Grant Tinker had a, a marvelous philosophy, and I wish more executives and companies embraced this. He felt you hired the best people, and then you stayed as much as you could out of their way. You gave them uh, guidance when you thought it was necessary, but not telling them how to do things, and you acted as a good downfield blocker, if I can use a football term, a downfield blocker for the writers and producers and directors in dealing with the networks or the studios so that they could spend most of their time concentrating on the creative aspects of doing whatever the show, of doing the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the, the two years, um, I, I left MTM because I, I had met someone where I, I ended up having a deal with this guy to develop a miniseries at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Television. Well, within... Within about six months, that deal, as many deals will happen uh, in the business, kind of fell apart, and I found myself without a job. But uh, but I sat down and I uh, and I wrote a a script on spec with uh, a friend of mine who uh, became uh, my writing partner for a number of years, and so we wrote this uh, script on spec. We wrote it on a story that. Um, that I kind of wanted to, to tell because I knew, I knew what the networks, because of my time at MTM, I knew what the networks were looking for. And so he and I uh, wrote a script called If Things Were Different. And it, um, it needed a female lead. And uh, the two hottest uh, women in television at the time were Elizabeth Montgomery and Suzanne Plachette. And we... Uh, uh, took the script to Bob Banner's production company. Bob Banner, at one point, just about anybody in television had worked with Bob Banner. A terrific man. And uh, Bob Banner had a, uh, a producer who was working with him on projects. That producer was Clyde Phillips, who became a good friend. Clyde Phillips is the current showrunner of the the revived Dexter, Dexter that is coming out. And Clyde is a uh, terrific uh, writer-producer. He's also a very good novelist. So we ended up taking the script to Suzanne Plachette. She committed to it right away. 
and CBS gave us an immediate green light go-ahead, and that became my first sold writing project. It ended up uh, being a, uh, it was a television movie starring Suzanne Plachet, Tony Roberts, Artie Johnson, Don Murray, and uh, it became one of the top-rated shows for CBS that entire year. So that ended up launching my career as a writer-producer. Um, from that point, I uh, started uh, writing and developing a number of other television movies and wrote uh, uh, quite a few television movies for the various networks. Uh, and then from there, um, moved into uh, television series uh, work. I was, uh, he and my writing partner at the time, he and I uh, were um, uh, also writing some feature scripts uh, that were opening doors for us, but we did not... Uh, uh, we did not get those features off the ground, but they they helped to you know, give us a lot of contacts and a lot of inroads uh, into the business. And but when the doors to television series opened up, we we stepped into that. And the first thing we did, we were the executive story editors on the very first year of the Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer series, starring Stacy Keach. And so we did all the writing uh, uh, as writers on that. For the first season. Do you have advice no. for a writer trying to get into the industry today, or is it impossible, or is it harder, or is it? What would you say to somebody new trying to get in? It is. Uh, it's certainly not impossible. Um, it is challenging. I will say it has always been challenging. I was told from the very beginning of my career from people who, you know, when I would say, "Hey, I want to write, produce, and direct," and They'd kind of look at me and say, well, good luck, kid, <laughs> because they knew how difficult it was. They knew how hard it was. They knew that you needed to meet people. You needed to – somebody had to give you a hand up. And, um, and that's why most of the people that I know who have had some success in this business are very open and willing to, uh, to try to help somebody else out if they think the, the, the person is really serious and if they sense a, you know, a bit of, of talent because nobody makes it in the entertainment business by themselves. Everyone needs a hand up at some point. But to break in as a writer, uh, it is definitely doable. But here's the key. You have to write. Now, I know that sounds kind of ridiculously simple, but it is foundationally important. If you want to write in television or motion pictures, you must write. And by that, I simply mean you must first, if you don't have an offer, because you've, in other words, if you haven't been able to pitch a story to somebody or present uh, a project, you haven't sold anything, you need to write something that you can show people that you actually have talent as a writer. So you need to write on spec. And writing on spec literally means you are writing on the speculation that you will hopefully sell something or that what you have written will interest somebody enough to maybe give you, you know, uh, a job. They may not buy the script that you've written, but they may say, hey, I think this person has talent. Let's, let's, let, you know, let's have them write an episode of this series we're doing. And that's the way that many writers break in. But if you don't have something that you've written that you can show somebody your talent as a writer, it's... That's darn near impossible. What I find 
and have found through the years, a lot of people who say that they want to write, until they actually sit down and do it, don't realize how difficult it is. And I know, Sherry, you're a writer yourself. So mm-hmm. you and I know you and I know what it's like to face the blank page. It's it's daunting. You know. It you, is you look at the it's blank funny, page. That's my it's advice. There. I'm sorry. I was gonna say that's no, my advice you know, too. Yeah. When somebody wants to write a novel, I say you have to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and doesn't you know, and they look at you as if oh, duh, yeah, I know you gotta write, but you know, you you wanna look back at them and say that's what it's all about. You've got to be able to put something down on the blank page. I'll tell you a little. I'll tell you a little. Uh, uh, what Rod Serling uh, told me, um, and he told it to me uh, several times. But he also told uh, t- told the same thing to his the seminar classes that he taught at Ithaca College. He said, "You know, so many people asked him, what does it take to be a writer?'" You know, and when do you know that you know, that you're a writer? And he said, if you really want to be a writer, he said that's only part of it. He said you're not fully a writer if you just want to be a writer. Well, when he first said that, I thought, wow, I thought that was the key. If you want to be a writer, that's what it takes. And he said, when you get to the point where the story that is inside you. You have to put it down on paper. You need to tell that story. And then you actually do it. He said, then you are a writer. When the want becomes the need that then forces you to express this story, whatever it is, screenplay, short story, novella, novel, you know, fiction, nonfiction, um, but just the need to put it down, then you know you're on your way. And as many people uh, have said, Stephen King, Ray Bradbury, writing begets writing. The more you write, the better you get, the more you learn. Um, And you just need to keep writing. So that's what I would tell people trying to to break into the film and television business as a writer. I I would tell them, watch as many movies as you can, watch as many television shows that interest you uh, that you can, then write something that comes from your heart that really excites you, um, and uh, definitely write, I would say, definitely write a spec screenplay. And the reason I say that, even if you want to do television, because it's an example of you as a writer being able to put something down that's in your voice how you as a writer express yourself. Or you can try writing a spec television pilot if you understand that form. Uh, today, uh, writers can, you can find on the Internet some pilot scripts that you can read, see how they are constructed. You can certainly watch uh, pilots. Uh, you can also write a spec episode of a series that you like that happens to be on the air. But make sure it's a series that uh, that you really like and that looks like it's going to be on the air for a little bit because then it's, more people will, will, you know, will recognize it. Um, yeah, but that's but you hard have to, to have know because sometimes yeah. a series yeah, is. is terrific. It, it, sometimes the series is terrific and then it gets canceled. It's, that's, that's, that one's yeah. a little hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, and that's one of the challenges of the – uh, of the business that 
those of us in the business have have had all sorts of experiences with shows being canceled on us, with getting a go-ahead to a script, but then the script doesn't get a go-ahead to production, or you get a go-ahead on a script, then you get the script gets a go-ahead into production, but then production gets stopped partway through because of this problem or that problem. Or um, There was a motion picture producer who told me one time, uh, he said, I... He said, I have had projects pulled on me and stopped at every stage of the game, including having completed a film and watched that film sit on the shelf and not get distributed. So he, he said to me, he said, I don't tell anyone I'm actually making a film until the film has opened in the theater. <laughs> because, you know, and, um, and I ended up having some similar challenges along that line. Um, yeah. And it because and some of it has nothing to do with the quality of the project you're doing. It, it, a lot of it has to do with the political nature of the studios and networks you're dealing with. It has to to do with money. It has to do with uh, power plays. Um, the entertainment business is a wide-ranging business, and it is a business, uh, and it is now more so a business than it ever was. Um, it is very corporate now. Um, and that's one of the things I think, sadly, that has changed um, uh, over the. I mean, I've I've been involved in the entertainment business now for 40 years, um, actually 40 plus, and it has changed radically. Uh, there's there are very good uh, movies and television shows being done today, but the manner in which they are uh, they are done, and clearly the manner in which things are distributed. Um, that part of the business has been turned upside down. And the, the latest that we see is all the, the rise of the uh, streaming services. That distribution pipeline has totally changed the nature of the entertainment business. Now the network studios, the production companies, and the streaming services, they are all racing to create as much IP, as much intellectual property as they can, and just have vast libraries. Um, because streaming services don't really care about ratings. They care about subscribers. Yeah. So um, they want to have game. as many shows. Yeah, totally different ballgame. And so it's changed the nature of, of the business. In some ways, we've also seen the nature of storytelling uh, change. And that will... I think always be the case um, because we we change as human beings. Cultures change. Uh, technology is advancing the way we live in our world uh, rapidly. Uh, you know, very soon we are going to, within five short years, we are going to be inundated with uh, the new world of AI, artificial intelligence. We are going to have uh, self-driving trucks and self-driving cars uh, the nature of transportation is going to be turned on its head. Um, and, um, you know, if we are able to get our handle, uh, handle on climate change, it's going to bring in all new sciences dealing with that. Uh, the advances and the advances in uh, genetics, where technology is racing forward, and we're all going to have to be willing and able and ready to change with it. Storytelling and movie making. Is, is going to be the same. It's one of the reasons where, I mean, I've, I was involved uh, over time in uh, 
uh, doing 10 television series on staff as a writer-producer, uh, sometimes as a supervising producer, co-executive producer. I have been a co-showrunner and showrunner. Um, I did uh, Scarecrow and Mrs. King a television series with Kate Jackson and Bruce Boxleitner. Uh, I then uh, helped turn MacGyver, the original MacGyver, into a, into a hit. And I've been involved in, uh, in uh, as a showrunner or co-showrunner in series such as Freddy's Nightmares, um, The Outer Limits, uh, The Sentinel. Um, actually was involved in the first ever international co-production of a television series called A Fine Romance. We shot it in Europe, uh, except for the last two episodes of the uh, first, and as it turned out, only season. last two episodes we, we shot in Northern California. Um, uh, this was a... Uh, uh, this was a production of uh, ABC, um, uh, New World Television, uh, London Weekend Television, TF1 in France, uh, uh, a German company. It might have been RTL in, in Germany. Um, and, and several other uh, production companies. Um, and it was due, it was actually a, a series that was designed, a terrific uh, pilot uh, uh, that was written by Sally Robinson. Um, it was a screwball romantic comedy, and at the time that it came out, it was being designed by ABC or planned by ABC to replace Moonlighting, you know, the, the great uh, series with uh, Sybil Shepherd um, and Bruce Willis. Because um, it was the same type of, uh, same genre in that it was uh, fast uh, romantic bickering, bantering between the characters, and it was a screwball romantic comedy. And the critics loved it. They said this is an, it was an excellent series. It's a great replacement, you know, because Moonlight, Moonlighting was definitely going off the air. They knew it was going to be the last season. Well, here's an example of politics rearing its ugly head. Uh, two executives at ABC ended up getting into uh, a little bit of a, shall I say, a pissing contest. Uh, and um, the one who won ended up rescheduling. Uh, he, had, he came out and said that uh, the American public doesn't want to see shows shot in Europe. Um, never really understood why he said that. But uh, he ended up getting the series rescheduled from Wednesday night, 10 o'clock, moonlighting slot. And he scheduled us at 8 o'clock on Thursday night. And... <laughs> three guesses as to what was on Thursday night at 8 o'clock at the time. It was the Bill Cosby show, the number one yeah. show on television. So we became cannon fodder for the, you know, for the ratings. And even the critics were saying, what the hell is ABC doing putting this show on Thursday at 8 o'clock? They're going to get killed. Well, they were right. We did get killed. Still <laughs> right. uh, um, running out of time. Um, do you have anything that's coming up? Um, are, are you working on anything that you can tell us, or is it all top secret? Uh, no, it's not top secret. I'll be very quick. Uh, coming up uh, a little later this year, I am putting the finishing touches on what is my uh, first uh, novel. Um, I do have a book that is already published. It's kind of a hybrid. It's uh, fiction and nonfiction that I co-wrote with Mark Victor Hansen. Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield are the co-authors of all the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. So Mark and I became friends, and we wrote this book. It's called You Are the Solution. 
uh, the letter U, the letter R, we kind of looked at it as if, you know, you got a text from God. Uh, to, and basically the, uh, the concept of that book was um, how would MacGyver get us out of some of the challenges that we have uh, in, in our world? And not just in, in our world currently, but how do, you, how do you find solutions in your daily life? And so we came up with a, uh, uh, the, most of the book is a fable that, uh, that really relies on uh, the principle of solutions, where to find them, how to apply them. And we are actually working on developing that as a feature film at this point. Uh, but the other thing that I'm really putting my focus on, uh, two things. One is a uh, feature film uh, that, um, uh, that I've been uh, developing. Um, and the other thing is writing my first full-fledged novel, putting the finishing touches on that. So uh, my website is www.billfrolich.com, and Frolich is uh, F-R-O-E-H-L-I-C-H. Uh, in German, it means happy. So Fröhlich Weihnachten means Merry Christmas. So uh, BillFrolich.com, uh, you can find some things out about me. And a little later this year, I hope to be uh, getting this book uh, published. Uh, very excited Great. about it. It is a uh, – uh, so that's something to look forward to in the months to come. And, um, uh, and when that's ready, I – hope a lot of people will be interested in, in buying it and taking a look. Me too. I'm sure they will. It sounds fascinating. Um, are you in social media? Do you have any of, like, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram? Um, uh, I, am, I am on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter, under, uh, but I'm, I'm not very active on Twitter. I, uh, I found Twitter to be somewhat strange, but uh, my handle on Twitter is Ithaca Films. Um, I-T-H-A-C-A Films, hence Ithaca, New York. Uh, and interestingly, Ithaca, New York is where they first made movies. That was the first Hollywood of the United States. Eventually, they realized that, uh, you know, the, during the winter when you're freezing your ass off in Ithaca, it might be better to be in the warm climate of California. So things eventually, you know, moved out to, uh, to Hollywood. But, um, but that's where the, the name comes from. I am on Facebook. Um, and uh, but I'm I'm not overly active on uh, social media at this point. Probably need to get get more active on it. But, uh, right <laughs> now I'm I'm active want... in front of the oh yeah I'm I'm active in front of the computer trying to finish <laughs> this novel. Um, no, I just meant just in case somebody be... wants to say hi. Oh yeah, you well. I, I am on Facebook, but I can also be uh, contacted through my website. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I've, it's, it's been great fun chatting with, uh, with another writer. Um, uh, we, we, we hold our heads high as, uh, as, as writers. It is a, a challenging thing to do, but, but so worthwhile. We, storytellers need to need to continue. So it's been a pleasure being here with you, Sherry, and I, I thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year. From first match, must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.